you're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Uh, It's a privilege for me to get to share with you again this morning. It's been a bit since I've been up here at the pulpit. Uh, Again, today we're going to be looking at John chapter 7. If you would join me there, and we're going to be looking. I'm just going to get it out there right now so you don't have to guess what we're talking about. Jesus' words on living water. That's going to be our focus. Um, I know this is a similar sounding topic to what was talked about a few weeks ago in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. I promise this isn't just a repeat of that. There's some new things we're looking at, but that's where we're going to be. Uh, Before we get started jumping into the word, I want to ask a question to all of you. And it's come up more than once this morning, so I don't feel bad bringing up how cold and white it is outside. Snowy football games, homelessness at this time of year. Uh, how are you all enjoying the snow outside right now? Be honest. There's some thumbs ups. I'm seeing some, <laughs> some of these. Okay. I thank you for your honesty. <clears throat> uh, for anyone listening online or, or from not here, it, it is late November. I, I keep forgetting that. The snow comes and I think to myself, not yet, but we're actually only one week out from Advent, so Christmas is right around the corner for us, and snow is very appropriate. It is cold outside and white outside, and for some of us, we're pretty done with it already. Like, judging by some of the faces I saw, I know that that's true. I work with Pastor Myron, I know that that's true. Day two of snow, some of us are done. We're ready for sandals, shorts, and springtime already. For others of us, we're really excited for this new season. It comes with pond hockey, snowmobiling, or maybe just the pleasure of a warm drink by a nice fire, watching the snowflakes fall, Christmas specials on TV, whatever it is, it's enjoyed by many. For some of us, this time of year is just a welcome reprieve from working outside in the extreme heat of the Manitoba summer. We live in a unique place in the world where we see temperature swings from plus 40 to minus 40, and so... When we haven't been in the minus 40 yet, a reprieve from the, the positive stuff uh, is very welcome from many. <clears throat> How many of you here were at the church camp out this summer? I heard that was extremely, extremely warm. Beth and I were going to come, and then Peter happened in our lives, and so we had to stay home and wait for him. But I, I heard a lot of people spent the majority of that weekend by the water, and with good reason. Uh, So with these things in mind, these hot days in your mind, I want you to think about those hot, hot summer days now that we're coming out of them. Recall the hottest day you can, and I want to ask you if you can recall the thirstiest you've ever been. I know Pastor Myron shared up here a couple weeks ago with his new diagnosis, just that extreme thirst. How many of you have come in from working in the summer heat, and it didn't seem like any amount of water could fix it? Uh, A certain summer comes to my mind. Uh, with that, uh, my, after my first year of Bible school, I worked for a highway construction and maintenance company in southern Alberta, <clears throat> and uh, there was one week in, in the midst of all the roadkill yeah, that I cleaned up on the highways and the different gross things I had to do, there was one week specifically that stands out that summer. Um, as construction crews would come through, our little group and our little small town shop would help them with paving projects and different things going on. And as a summer student, I was never the guy driving the fun big machinery or even on the end of a shovel at the back of a truck. What do summer students do with construction crews on the highway? 
I'm the dude in the yellow jumpsuit holding the sign telling you to stop or slow down and really ruining your day as you're trying to get somewhere. That was my summer. And uh, when the construction crews came through, we worked really long days to try to get the job done as quick as possible. 13, 14 hour work days on hot black top and plus 30 whatever dry summer heat in Southern Alberta. And uh, <laughs> I remember this week that the construction crew was out I was working with specifically was the week of a family camp at a Bible camp in Saskatchewan my family always went to. And so my family went to, to family camp and I was going to follow behind when my work week finished because we were expecting a short week, long hours, be done by Wednesday. I was going to follow behind and join them at camp. But when Thursday night came, I had such a bad case of heat stroke that I couldn't move. I, I got into my mom's house and like laid down face first on the carpet with a juice box, kind of just like shoved the straw into the side of my mouth, slurping juice, and that was, I didn't move much further from there until the next morning. I called my family, said I wasn't going to be joining them. I'm just going to stay home and sleep this off. But what I remember about that next morning and that night is drinking an obscene amount of water to the point that I felt sick, and also remembering vividly how good that water tasted. Like, water's not supposed to taste like anything unless it's, like, really bad. But I remember how good and how refreshing that water tasted. We as human beings are made up of about 60% water, and so we need it to survive. I say all this to kind of segue into a, a story that I have for you about a TV show that Beth and I used to watch, especially when we lived in, in BC. Uh, we watched it quite a bit. We were put on it by our pastor of our church there. We rented from him. His family was really into it. It's called Alone. Has anybody here heard of a TV show called Alone? Okay, so it's like real-life survivor. It's no camera crews, no big group of people with you. People are dropped in isolated locations with trail cams and GoPros, and they have to survive by themselves as long as they can. There's no set time limit. It's just how long can you go and who's going to be the last man standing. <clears throat> they get people who are... Uh, they get outdoorsmen, survival experts, even former military people to compete in this show. And they make sure they're placed in areas where there's either an impassable body of water or mountains so that they can't get to anyone or anything else to help them survive. And the first thing these people do in this show, just thinking of, of all the episodes and the seasons we watched, the first priority for every single individual always is water. Without it, we die, so it's always number one on the priority list. They get dropped in their remote location before they can even panic and freak out about what was that noise in the trees. Water is the first thing on their mind. Build a fire so I can boil water, so I can drink, so I can live. Well, one season, there was this guy who found that he had a, a perceived edge on the competition. Uh, this was a remote area of Vancouver on the coast where this was taking place, and so he had coasts on one side, mountains on his back, and he found a stream of water coming down from the mountains and he also noticed the specific type of moss growing near the water. The wheels are turning in this guy's head. He's a survivalist. He knows all these things about the outdoors. And he knows this type of moss can be used to filter water to make it drinkable if the water's not too bad. So he's thinking to himself, clear advantage. I can start thinking about food, start thinking about shelter, start thinking about all these things before I have to worry about building a fire and boiling water to survive. He goes about doing so. Things were going really well for this guy. He'd set up quite an impressive shelter early on. He was already setting up fishing nets. He was doing very well for himself. <clears throat> but he suddenly started to feel 
a little off. He uh, wasn't feeling so well. He started to hallucinate a little bit even, and his concerns started to grow. What's going on, he wonders. And so he starts checking through the things in his head. Okay, what, what could be causing this to happen to me? Eventually, he finds himself thinking about his water source. So he goes to the stream that he'd been drawing and filtering his water from with this moss, and he started to track it, track it back towards the mountain to see where his, you know, what he thought was beautiful mountain runoff water was coming from. It wasn't beautiful mountain runoff water. The stream of water was running from a gross bog at the foot of the mountains that had dead animals and animal excrement in it, and immediately this guy starts to panic. What in the world have I been drinking? Moss ain't going to fix that. I'm in trouble. Now, with this show, they're left alone, but they're all given a satellite phone so that if they want out or if they're in danger, they can call for help. He called for help right then and there and was helicoptered out to receive the health care that he needed. Our physical makeup requires water to survive, and it requires clean, good water to survive. Otherwise, that which we think is actually saving and sustaining us can be killing us. In the same way that our body needs water to survive, being made in God's image and having a soul, a spirit, this needs to be sustained in the same way that our body does with water. Our soul thirsts for God. And when this thirst is addressed, there should be a specific outcome that takes place. And that's what, addre- what is addressed in John chapter 7 this morning that we're going to be looking at. When Jesus talks about streams of living water. So that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to try to, as faithfully as I can, walk through this with you in the hopes that thirst would be awakened in our hearts and that our souls would drink fully today. So would you please pray with me now before we jump into John 7 and see what God has for us. Heavenly Father... I thank you so much for a beautiful day outside today, Uh, beautiful change in seasons, the things that they invoke in our minds, the the opportunities we've had to learn already this morning through the words of the songs we've sang, through the stories shared from Gary, the poem from June, and now from your word, God, as we look at it together in this time, I pray that we would be shaped, that we would be challenged, that we would be convicted, that we would be moved to greater depths of relationship with you and greater understanding of your word, that we might honor and glorify you with all of our lives. Father, lead us through this passage well now. Let your words come through clearly and bless us in this space we have together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So we're going to try to cover just about all of John chapter 7 today, with that streams of living water in our minds as our focal point. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because that would take a long time. I'm going to read some fairly hefty chunks of it and try to just do a synopsis of the rest. So uh, if you haven't read John chapter 7 recently, I encourage you strongly to do so at home. It would be great if you would be reading and studying through this with us as we look at it on Sunday mornings. So please take the time to look at God's word uh, with your families at home. John chapter 7. John chapter 7 takes place, uh, if we're looking at a timeline of events here in the book of John, roughly six months after the previous chapter's events. Last week, Pastor Myron preached on the feeding of the 5,000, 
And we know we can deduce the, this time space between these two events from verses in uh, John chapter 6, verse 4, where it talks about that event's proximity to Passover, and this chapter taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles. And we know from looking at the Jewish calendar, these events take place six months apart from each other. So, at the end of John chapter 6, at the end of Jesus' very challenging words about the bread of life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, six months has gone by for that to really marinate in people's minds. And in its time marinating, it hasn't been received super well. Uh, People, we saw at the end of that chapter, could not receive what God presented to them, what Jesus spoke to them, and many, many people left. Only a select few stayed and followed him, and Jesus asked them, will you leave as well? And we know now at the beginning of chapter 7, the Jews are trying to kill him. They're not very happy. His popularity poll has swung dramatically in the wrong direction, as the world would see it. His popularity has taken a hit. But, and so because of that, Jesus is staying away purposely from Judea and hanging out primarily in the region of Galilee, but that's about to change. The Feast of Tabernacles was upon them, and it was a very important celebration for the Hebrew people. It wasn't one that you would dare miss. It was a reminder um, of the people's wanderings in the wilderness and of God's uh, amazing provision for them and his promise for salvation yet to come from their wanderings both physically in the wilderness and spiritually with a Savior to come. Jesus' own brothers recognize that this is important, and they recognize something about this brother of theirs, this half-brother of theirs, and they tell him, this is a big deal. You should go. You want to be a public figure, don't you? This is the time and the place to reveal yourself. You should go there so that people can see your miracles. It does say uh, in there that they did not believe who he was. They didn't understand fully Jesus' purpose in being. They just knew that he was claimed to be the coming king that would save them from Rome. And so why not make a statement in a place where all the people would hear you and would follow you? This makes sense from human understanding. Uh, Commentator Kenneth Gangle refers to this by calling the Feast of Tabernacles the equivalent of a modern-day media event like the Oscars or Golden Globes. Anyone who was anyone was there. Anyone who wanted to be anyone was there. You went there to partake in this feast if you were a proper Hebrew. So, from human understanding, this would be the place to go and speak, to which Jesus says to his brothers, not yet. I want to focus on this really quickly because a lot of people get hung up on this, actually, and think that Jesus has lied to his brothers in this moment, saying, no, I'm not going to go, only to follow sneakily behind them. Jesus' response is never no, it is simply not yet. He goes shortly after and and only reveals himself once he's there halfway through the feast. And this is not the same as somebody coming halfway through our morning service, sneakily following behind someone when they said they weren't going to come. The Feast of Tabernacles was a a seven-day long, it was eventually later if you're into these kind of details, extended to eight days. But originally the Feast of Tabernacles was a week long, seven days And so Jesus follows behind them shortly after. It doesn't say how long. But he began to reveal himself and teach halfway through this seven-day event. So Jesus is not, in fact, lying, but rather is just acting in accordance with his father's plan and timing, not his brother's. Why? We don't really know. A lot of commentators uh, suppose that this could be due to the heat that he had on him. People wanted him dead. 
They knew who his family was. Maybe they'd be looking for him at the gate. Um, maybe it was just prudent of him. Maybe, maybe, maybe. We don't know exactly why. What we do know is that he followed later because it was purposed by God for it to play out this way. That's all we need to know. And when he does begin to teach and reveal himself, he blows people away with his words, which I want to look at very quickly here. We're going to look at verses 14 to 24 of John chapter 7 together. And those read, Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied, with no education? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. He has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. And you were all astonished. He says this in reference to the healing of the lame man two chapters back on the Sabbath. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, although it actually didn't come from Moses but the patriarchs, you circumcise a child even on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry uh, with me for healing a whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgment. These are bold, strong words. And after this, people start to wonder, is this the Christ? But we won't know who the Christ is. We know where this guy's from. We know his parents. We know who he is. Well, they wanted to kill him and they haven't arrested him yet. Maybe these religious leaders even think that it's our Messiah. And after this, I I, want to read another bigger chunk here because this is what everything's hanging on this morning. Jesus says, starting at verse 28... Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, When the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time, and then I will go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews were confused and said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said... You will look for me, but you will not find me. Or where I am, you cannot come. Then on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point in time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Profound words from a Savior and very misunderstood words from the people receiving them. Yes, you know me, but you don't really know me. 
Yeah, you know where I come from, but you don't really know where I come from. You don't know who sent me, but I do. How can he go somewhere where we can't find? None of this is making sense. And then at the end of this, the most brazen statement of all at the most controversial time for those receiving it, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, to understand why this is controversial and to understand the last and greatest day, this is all very important. We're going to talk a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles. During the Feast of Tabernacles, there were various water-pouring rituals that took place. Um, People would come with little uh, jars to be filled. There was a daily, in fact, uh, ritual that took place where a processional would follow uh, the priest who would go to the pool of Siloam and fill up a golden pitcher that he held which would then be taken to the altar and poured out onto the altar while all the people would watch and recite Isaiah 12.3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. On the last day of the feast, however, the last and greatest day, all of these things, speaking of God's provision for people in the wilderness, comes to a head when this processional begins, following the priest, dipping in the pool, taking it to the altar. But when he gets there, he circles the altar seven times. Symbolic, believed to be, of the Hebrew peoples walking around Jericho. And as he came around for the sixth pass, he would be joined by a second priest carrying a pitcher of wine. They would ascend the ramp after this last lap and hold the pitchers out over the altar, higher and higher in the air as the people cheered. It was considered a great blessing to see the pitcher and to see what was being poured out. And then they would pour both the water and the wine over the altar. This would symbolize the salvation of God provided for the people in the wilderness. Water come from the rock when Moses struck it. Bread sent from heaven. God's provision for his people in a very physical sense. And it also symbolized the salvation that would come through their awaited Messiah. Wine, the blood poured out for God's people that they would receive salvation beyond the physical into the realm of the spiritual. And it is at this point in the feast that Jesus shouts, Any who are thirsty, come to me. Come to me and drink. And if you believe in me, streams of living water will flow from within you. The Spirit will be given to you. The sacrifice that I will make will provide for you. Seemingly in direct response to this event, he says, it's me. Are you thirsty? Now, who he was was already a hotly debated subject. So this led to mass confusion once again. Is this the man who prepares the way? Is this the man? It's not the man. But his question remains, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? (laughs) And if you were thirsty, talking in the spiritual sense here, right, the soul that needs to be sustained in the same way as the body, what are you drinking? It's really easy for us to say, yeah, I'm thirsty. I want this. But I'm here to challenge this morning that I don't think we're as thirsty as we think we are, or as we say we are. 
I was, I was listening to some men preach this week uh, during my time in the office, and I came across words from John MacArthur saying, it is my job to stand here and offend you. If anyone not belonging to this face comes and leaves unoffended, I've done my job wrong. Paul Washer stood before a congregation once and said, I am to preach as a dying man before dying men, women, and children, knowing that this is the only way through which we receive life. Are we actually as thirsty as we say we are? So I'm just going to pedal into this. Outside of their words and into my own, I don't like offending people. Nobody likes to be that guy who is unliked or has people whispering about them. It is not my desire to offend you, but it is my intention. Are you thirsty, West End Community Church? I saw a cartoon once that made me laugh, and yes, I'm a grown man who still watches cartoons from time to time. Um, And in this cartoon... There's a depiction of this restaurant that was struggling for business. You know, the classic cartoon, cobwebs hanging off the ceiling, um, dust everywhere. Struggling for business, their situation was dire. Suddenly, the employees of the restaurant hear the jingle of the bells over the doors. The door opens, and they look to see a man crawling in who looks like he's come in from wandering for days in the desert. Tattered clothes, pulling himself across the floor, gasping, food, water, and so being excited for customer. They rush him some food to which the man looks at it and, and is just completely turned off by the blandness of it. Oh, just a cheeseburger and a drink? There's nothing exciting about this. It's just so plain. Where's the pizzazz? Where's the excitement? And he turns around and crawls out of the restaurant, now gasping as he goes, food, water, atmosphere. And I fear that this is the kind of thirsty we tend to be. It has to look a certain way, appeal to a certain desire, sound so good. A speaker can't just be a good speaker. He's got to be exciting. He's got to be engaging. He's got to be loud and boisterous. We want the atmosphere more than we want the sustenance. How often do we go to a book or a podcast or an online or YouTube sermon instead of to God's word when we feel like we need that recharge and that boost for the week. A TV preacher, whoever it is, we look for things that appeal to us. We look for what's easy and nice. And when we take those things in, we're taking in something that might look or sound good And it might be, but how do we really know? How do we know the content of what we are ingesting? It's like the guy from the TV show alone, right? It might look right. It might look good. It might look like an advantage to us. But where does it come from? What is the source? Is it feeding my soul or is it damaging it under the guise of refreshment? There are so many preachers and authors out there that are dangerous. That wax elegant, elegant, elegant's not a word, that wax elegant enough that we ingest what they're giving us without a second thought or without ever testing what's being given. Now, I'm not entirely just trying to scare you today, but it is a dangerous world out there with dangerous teaching and ideology that's being passed on as truth. People who, as verse 18 says, speak on their own 
for their own gain. So if we're thirsty spiritually, how do we address this spiritual thirst? How do we know what's good and what's not? Well, Jesus tells us in, in, in verse 17, if anyone chooses to do my will, he will find out whether the teaching comes from God or from man. This is where this message more deviates from chapter 4, as Jesus is the living water into an understanding of the source of where that water comes from. Jesus satisfies thirst, <clears throat> but here we want to look at the proof of our level of thirst and how sure are we being that we're being given what's right. Verse 17 and 38, if you look at them, anyone who chooses to do God's will and if anyone's thirsty, come to me, are more closely linked than we realize at a first passing glance. Right? Steam, streams of water, doing God's will, where do they connect? Streams of living water. Come to me and drink and you will receive this thing. Living water, meaning God's divine activity, the movement of the Spirit. <clears throat> One second, sorry. Divine activity, living water, the movement of the Spirit symbolized as fresh water flowing over what's stagnant. That's what a stream is, right? It's water moving over, something moving over something that's not. Indicating that God refreshes us and also about the work of the Holy Spirit upon people, their shaping and the refreshment of eternal life. The Holy Spirit imparts on us transforming, cleansing spiritual life. And this new life impacts us totally, constantly, continually to usher us into eternity. A stream or river, as I said, by definition, is continuous flow or movement. A steady stream of people is continuous. A stream of water is water that is not moving, is not stagnant, coming and going with the tides. It's flowing somewhere. Remember back to the spring for a moment. You guys remember the, the runoff and the flooding we had in this area? We all saw what moving water can do. What does moving water do? It can drastically change the shape or the landscape of what's in front of it. We saw roads disappear. We saw train tracks completely undercut from any amount of earth. We saw our churchyard become an island. Trees uprooted property destroyed, and so much more. <clears throat> That's what the Spirit does. It's constantly moving, constantly changing the shape and the landscape of what it moves over. It's what it should be doing in us. Well, how is this related to verse 17? How do we know God's will? How do we know what is good and what the source is, right? Verse 17, doing God's will. What is God's will? What does God want from us? Matthew 22, verse 37, and Micah 6, 8 paint a pretty good picture for that. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love others as you love yourself on 
these things hang all the law and the prophets. Every teaching you have is summed up in that. Micah 6.8. Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. As we walk with God through the scriptures, we ought to do so humbly, not looking to just big brain our way through this and figure it out. We're called to let the current of the Spirit carry us to understanding as we take it in, not relying on our intellect and judgment. And as we do, we see God's justice at work. As we saw in the Psalms, his opposition to those who oppose him His mercy for even those who did rebel against him. He offered forgiveness and help and hope. That love, that forgiveness, that justice needs to become a part of us that we might pour it out into others following his example, being changed, the very nature of our being as we do so. Humanity by its nature is self-serving. I don't know if you figured that out or not yet. If you haven't, surprise. You go out into the world, and there's not a lot out there that isn't looking to just satisfy its own need. I mean, I don't want to drag up old stuff now that we're out of it, but think about the early days of COVID and how much people stockpiled toilet paper and milk, thinking only of themselves and not of the family of five children walking in behind looking for the same things who were unable to get them. We think only of ourselves by the very nature of our being because we're born into sin and rebellion. But as we get to know who God is, to earnestly desire and seek him, his truth and his will, as opposed to self-seeking, we discover an attitude of life that should be the goal of the mature person. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Verse 18, he who speaks on his own does so to gain for himself, gain honor for himself, prestige for himself, benefit for himself. But he who works for the honor of one who sent him is a man of truth. I'm not trying to pump myself up here, but like I said, I'm not here to make everyone happy. I'm here to tell you what God says. It's not about a popularity contest or look how much I know. My goal and my aim, my hope is to honor the one who sent me that you might know who he is and follow him. There's a battle taking place in the world between belief and unbelief centered on how one views God and self. If God is first, then belief comes easy because we seek him, we follow him, we walk humbly next to him and know him But when oneself is first, belief is pushed to the side or rationalized away as we lean heavily on our own judgment and ability. A person who is truly thirsty and comes to Jesus to satisfy it, who has streams of water flowing from them, will be different and be continuously made different on the daily. It's a question of stagnant versus change. Do you feel different today than you were yesterday? The day before that? How much did you feed yourself with this? 
Um, there's a book out there. I just saw this isn't written down here, so I'm going to probably butcher the name of it. There's a book on our table out there in the foyer, uh, the title of which is Designed to Crave or something like that. And it's about not just being people who are made to be hungry for food, but hungry for our God and our Savior. If we're looking to just satisfy our need, our hunger rests in the intellectual and the physical. But if we're hungry to honor him and seeking him, this leads not just, this obedience leads not just to understand, or leads to understanding, sorry, not just to knowledge. There can be knowledge with no fruit that comes from it, but if you understand who God is, we can never be the same. This is the reason they stumbled over. You will look, but you will not find. Where I'm going, you can't come. They were thinking purely from an intellectual and physical standpoint, just like in the previous chapter with the feeding of the 5,000. People wanted bread. They wanted food. They wanted physical sustenance, not anything more. And as soon as more came and they were challenged, they were gone. They were out so, so quickly. Their heads and stomachs sought after him instead of their hearts. Now, before jumping into the book of John, we went through the book of Jeremiah. And I'm going to call back to a a verse from Jeremiah. It's one of the most famous and misused verses in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11. Two verses later, God promised a future for his people in uh, Jeremiah, sorry, 29, 11, God promised a future for his people, specifically in that context, because from them would come the Messiah. That's where our promise comes, the hope in the future. Not physically as it was for Israel in the Savior. But he also gives this promise. Two verses later, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do our hearts seek after a Savior? Do our hearts recognize their parched state? Seek Him, the source, not just to know, not just to lord it over people, not just to be viewed as knowledgeable as the Pharisees did here, but because we are parched and quenching that thirst, that need for life is only found in Him. Books and podcasts and the extra stuff around us. That, that's even this morning, being here listening to me, it's not a terrible thing. I'll let you be the judge of listening to me is terrible or not. I'm not going to do that about myself. The extra stuff isn't in and of itself a bad thing, but I, I had a, a professor at Bible college once tell my whole class that for any amount of that stuff that we intake, our time here in this book needs to be doubled or even tripled so that we might discern what is good, looking for first-hand knowledge, not just a second-hand understanding. This is seen, the need for this is seen in how this plays out afterwards, how people respond to Jesus. The Pharisees ask the, the temple guards, why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you bring him? And their response is, no one ever spoke the way this man does. In other gospel accounts, it says he spoke as one with authority, not as our scribes and our teachers. 
the source from which comes eternal life should be sought after more than anything if our hearts are truly in a place of thirst. And in drinking this, in coming to him as chapter 4 prescribed, I am the living water. I will bring that new life to you. Once that new life comes, it's not anything you do. Once Jesus saves you, that well springs up from within you and the Holy Spirit moves you to change. There has to be a response of some kind to the work happening in us. And when I say that, I mean a response in us and how people see us and people's response to us change. There was a response here, some embracing him, some rebelling, some hating him. But people noticed that which was different, and they saw a change in his followers. The early church in the book of Acts moved to be different. These are simple, uneducated men, yet look what they are doing. My goodness, the world turned upside down. So I'm going to wrap things up here this morning now. Sorry, we're a little over time again. What do I want you to take away from this morning? Three things. And what we just looked at. Recognize that your soul thirsts. It truly does. It's not just a stone sitting and waiting for something to happen. It's a seed that needs to be nurtured to grow. Your soul thirsts. Two, we must be sure of the source of what quenches our soul. Come to what is good. Look at the heart of God and discern his will here as the Spirit carries you through it. And number three, as that quenching, that, uh, that, that quenching life, that stream of water, of life-giving water moves in us, it should erode away what was and make us into what God intended. You're thirsty. What will fix it? Will you be changed by it? Now, in conclusion, this isn't just a try it and see prescription from the pulpit. This isn't a go start doing stuff, read the Bible and act and yada yada, and you will be promised change. Any, any cult can offer that same prescription. Do this thing, and it'll, and it'll work. It's not about what you do. That's the encouragement, and that's the promise I want to give you today. This isn't about you're working your way into God's good graces. This isn't about you working your way into salvation. This isn't about you working your way into being a better man or woman, as God would hope you to be. This is about what Jesus has done. He is the one who satisfies the thirst. I am the one who will give you what is to drink. I am the one who comes with words from my Father And up to that time, the Spirit hadn't been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. I will give myself for you that this gift, this life-giving water would flow through you and change you. It's not for you to try to effort your way into completion. It's for you to release, relinquish your feelings of control, your ideas of judgment and what is and isn't, and let that stream carry you into understanding his word, into knowing him more, into being more like him. Seek him and let that current carry you to completion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning.
I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the promises of your son that we see written here. Lord, you are so good. You are beyond generous and merciful and gracious in how you deal with us, Lord, people who get caught stagnant sometimes. We're not moving the way we ought to be. We're not desiring that change because we're happy with where we are. Lord, let us want more. Let us become aware of the thirst that exists in our soul. And let us seek you that it might be satisfied. Let us know you so we might understand the amazing gift, amazing grace that we've received at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us follow you, Lord, that others would find themselves caught up in the streams of your goodness and grace and change them as well. Thank you for this morning to share together. Thank you for the worship team. And Lord, as we close this morning off in song, I just pray that our hearts would be moved <clears throat> in such a way, Lord, that we would leave this place changed and we would come back next week changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.